Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you've got your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 2, moving right along from where we were. And I'll pray. Lord, help me to say everything you want me to say, nothing more, nothing less, or just the way that you would like me to say it. And most importantly, Holy Spirit, would you be speaking through me, speaking to all of us, myself included, uh, forming us, shaping us, growing us, uh, deepening us, discipling us through this content, through your word, to make us into the men and the women, uh, the leaders, the laborers you want us to be. For your namesake, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, John chapter 2. So again, we're looking at the very beginning of Jesus' discipleship group, basically picking up right where we left off. At this point, he probably is five to six disciples, okay? Uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel, and uh, he's going to go to a wedding. So this picks up right on the question that Cam was just asking about. We're going to look at three points, okay? He's going to disciple through normal life. He's going to disciple those that are naturally networked. And he's going to do discipleship that's not nominal. And I'll explain what I mean by all that as we get there. But normal life is pretty self-explanatory. Let's start in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And skip, uh, well... Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Let's get down to verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So, see what Jesus is doing with his discipleship. The very first thing that we find him doing is not saying, let's have a deep Bible study or let's go on a mission trip. He said, oh, I got invited to this wedding. You guys want to come? Now, we don't know for sure if Jesus was invited to this wedding and he was allowed to be friends, or it may be that his friends, because they're all kind of from similar small-town area, knew some people, and some of them were invited as well. Okay, There's speculation. We don't know for sure. Uh, but what I want you to see is they were in each other's life, normal life, life on life. More is caught than taught. At the end of the passage, Jesus travels to Capernaum. That's where John and James lived. He's going to their hometown. Uh, he probably kind of set up his ministry headquarters there for a while. Okay, so they're doing normal life together. When I first came on staff, I mentioned this earlier, I was at the University of North Alabama. And the very first semester we were there, we saw about 50 people make a profession of faith in about a two-month period. Uh, it was you know, evangelistic fruitfulness. It was the greatest thing I've ever been a part of. Uh, it's all been downhill since then. Okay, But in some sense, the next four years being in Florence... You know, my wife and I and the other staff couple, uh, we, we really, in some sense, it was all follow-up discipleship and multiplying through those 50 people. So then when I was leaving, again, after having been there for about four or five, uh, four and a half years, I guess, I kind of did a little survey because I was still connected to most of them. You know, just trying to say, what, what did God use most here to help you? And, and some people obviously said, well, you led me to Christ, right? It's hard to top that one. But... Maybe the biggest, most consistent thing, other than somebody in CO led me to Christ, was this. Just being able to see the way that your family interacted. You see, the vast majority of them came from non-Christian families, 
and the vast majority of them came from broken homes. And we were living in a little small apartment that was right by campus in a little small house right by camp renting. You know, that would be the kind of places where students lived. We, we were all up, you know, we had a little parking lot, gravel parking lot essentially was our backyard and students would park there to walk to campus. And my wife and I, you know, if we were doing a marriage seminar, you get to hear lots of me and my wife fighting stories. Our first three years were pretty rough. We fought a lot. And, you know, there would be students that would come by in the middle of a fight. And we had this little tiny house. There was really nowhere to hide. And it seemed like there were windows everywhere. Like even the doors had windows. And I remember sometimes, you know, we'd hear somebody knocking. Like, just be quiet. They'll go away. You know, they'd be living with and uh, sometimes I literally would have to go out to one of my disciples. You know, we'd have like a one-on-one schedule. I'd say, now's not a good time. You just need to leave. You know, or sometimes they would just come in on the fight. But, but they said later, being able to come to your house, being able to have dinner with your family, being able to see how y'all did family devotions that your kids probably won't remember. They didn't say that, but I'm saying that. Right? Um, being able to see how you disciplined your kids, being able to see how you and your wife fought, but then y'all made up and moved up. That's what impacted them the most. And there was one guy, I'll just share this little piece, there was one guy that came to Christ in that first group, and, uh, and he seemed to be the one that was a magnet for a lot. I mean, my wife and I used to joke, it's like, he is a magnet when we're having like our worst fights is when he shows up. And he, he was kind of guy like didn't take a hint, you know? Like, hey, you know, come on in. Uh, well, he's an ordained pastor now. And for a while, he lived in our same neighborhood in Birmingham. He's married. He's got four kids. And if you knew the background story of his family of origin, it's just a disaster. And there would be times when I'd be out recently just walk around my neighborhood and see, like, one of his little kids running around playing and happy. And it was like, you know what? I remember how frustrated I used to get when this dude would come to my house and I'm just trying to keep my marriage together. It was so worth it. Because his kids are already having a radically different experience than he had when he was a little boy. Does that make sense? Okay. Do normal life. Listen, it is more time intensive. It's hard. It's going to cost you, but it's worth it. I promise you it's worth it. It's messy. It's worth it. Second, naturally networked. Okay. Flip back to chapter one because we kind of breeze past this. But just notice. We know that Peter and Andrew are brothers. John and James are brothers. Philip, chapter 1, verse 44, is from the same hometown as Andrew and Peter. There's a lot of overlap. As many as seven of the disciples may have been fishermen. We know for sure Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But, you know, if you go to John 21, it says seven of them all went fishing together. So there's some speculation. There may have been many seven of them that were all in the business of fishing. Okay. Um, Philip and Nathaniel, they already knew each other. Were they related or were they just best friends? Okay, we don't know. But naturally networked. Okay, um, John MacArthur, he's got a little book. Um, a few good, it's not called A Few Good Men, that's a movie. I don't know. He has some book about the 12 disciples that I can't remember the title of it right now. And uh, part of what he says, uh, 12 Ordinary Men, that's what it's called. And he says, listen, especially the first four, they all kind of share the same spiritual interest. They've taken a sabbatical from fishing, is what it seemed like, to go follow John the Baptist. So they had a lot in common. Okay, Six of them seemed like they were already relationally networked and connected. 
This is MacArthur. It says, so perhaps one of the reasons Christ selected and called this particular group is that for the most part, they already got along well. So MacArthur speculates as well. James the Less and Matthew may have been related. They may have even been brothers. So here's my point. Discipleship, if you're doing it the right way, this narrow form of intensive discipleship, it's hard. It's going to cost you something. So stack the deck in your favor. I know it's cool right now to talk about, we want multi-generational and co-ed and cross-disciple. And it's like, okay. But one thing, don't be too bold and like, that's the most biblical way to do it. Well, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus had 12 Jewish dudes. Anytime you're trying to be more spiritual than Jesus, you're in trouble. Think about the best discipleship groups you've ever had. I'm meeting with two guys right now I talked about that are you know, off the campus in the church. They're brothers, and they have the same profession, and it's going great. I had another off-campus discipleship group. Three guys that all went to the same college. They were all on campus outreach. They all played football together and then graduated, and two of them worked at the same law firm. It was an incredible group, right? I... I one of the last discipleship groups I had on the campus. They were four guys. They were all in the same fraternity. They were all seniors. They were all in the business school. Now, one of them was from South Africa. One of them was Chinese, right? There, there, was, there was differences, but there was a lot of overlap. Does that make sense? The more overlap you get, it just stacks the deck in your favor. And in my experience, while we're on this type of topic, typically the best size of a discipleship group is somewhere between two and six. You know? Three to four kinds of seems like the sweet spot. You know, if you have two or five, that works. can be really, really good. Six almost seems like it's starting to get a little too big, maybe. Okay, and one is, you know, it's, you know, again, something Pastor Reader in Birmingham says is, you know, one-on-one discipleship is good for a season and for a reason, but in the long run, it's not best because there's something that comes from the peer dynamic where they learn from one another. I mean, I got two seniors that I'm meeting with at Sanford right now, and recently we were talking, we kind of got done. I said, well, what do you guys, any, any, any prayer requests y'all have, anything y'all need to talk about accountability-wise, anything for next week you need to be held accountable for? And the first guy, and he's a little more introverted, he's like, I can't really think of anything. And I'm such a nice guy in those settings, I wasn't going to say anything. But his buddy, the other guy who's much more an expert, said, yes, you can. You can think of something. And it was great. He pushed back on him, you know? So sometimes there's great interaction in the peer-led stuff. I mean, guys, I remember even back when I was a middle schooler, there was a Sunday school teacher. I mean, in some sense, he tried to do life on life. I remember he was a big UGA fan. He would take us to UGA games on Saturdays. And the next year, I kind of moved up into, I guess he was maybe the seventh grade boys Sunday school teacher. And the next year, I was in the eighth grade, and um, I saw him one day at church, you know. And I said, hey, are you doing the same thing with the... Seventh graders that you used to do with us last year. And, you know, I, I really appreciated this guy's honesty. He kind of pulled me aside. I said, oh, let me be honest with you. He said, when you and your guys were in there, he said, for whatever reason, he said, I don't know. He said, I just like y'all. I enjoyed y'all. He said, so I like taking y'all to UGA games. And, you know, if I went one week and I couldn't take y'all, I was in a hurry to get back Saturday night so I could be here Sunday morning. He said, I got to be honest. I don't really like this group of seventh graders. I don't take them to games. And when I go to games by myself, I'm not in a hurry to get back for Sunday mornings. 
Now just think about that. I mean, there is something honest. If you like and enjoy, and there's kind of some natural networking with people, it's going to be easier to do life on life. So guys, please hear my heart here. Am I saying you should only disciple people that you like and are cool and are easy for you? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying when you have to make a choice, the more naturally networked they can already be and get along and the more you can get along with them, the better chance you're going to have of doing this intensive discipleship. Because you'll like having them at your house better. It'll be fun. I mean, I've had times where I call my wife on the way home from campus or maybe it's the next morning because she's already asleep and I'll kind of jokingly say, I think something's wrong with me. She's like, what are you talking about? She's like, you know, a lot's wrong with you, but what do you, what do you mean? I say, I'm hanging out with this 18-year-old guy on the campus, you know. I'm in my 40s, and I really like him. He's like a friend. We're like laughing and joking. It's like, I, it's like I'm having fun, you know. Something, she's like, well, I guess you're just called for college ministry, right? But it just it makes it easier to stay out late on campus when you like the people you're hanging out with. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Um. So get people that are naturally networked with one another and to some degree even with you. And then I'd say your discipleship needs to be not nominal. Now, what do I mean by not nominal? Uh, Look at verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, does anything about verse 11 seem a little weird to any of you? Flip back over to chapter 1. The best way to interpret Scripture is in light of Scripture. Okay? Look, look at what... Chapter 1, verse 41. What Andrew said. We have found the Messiah. Authority already believed. Verse 45. What Philip says to Nathaniel. We have found Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Well, they already believed. So what does it mean they believe here? It just means they're going deeper. They're going deeper with their faith. John Gill says... Uh, they're being confirmed in their faith. So I remember years ago hearing uh, Tim Keller talk about he had thyroid cancer and while he was in the hospital, he read this big 800-page long book by N.T. Wright on the resurrection. He says, you know, I already believe in the resurrection of Christ, but after I read this 800-page book on the resurrection of Christ, I believed it even more. Well, you know, just within the last year, Tim Keller's gotten pancreatic cancer, and I read an article maybe in March, sometime re- fairly recently, in the Atlantic that Keller wrote, and I think he said he read that book again, and his faith went even deeper. Now, my guess is all of us have heard of Tim Keller, maybe read one of his books, heard a sermon or two. Maybe you don't like everything he says, but it's like there's something good coming out of the man's life. And it's like he's in his 70s, and he's reading the same book for a second time, and it's like he's believing in the resurrection more. There's always deeper levels that we can go and that we need to be taking people to go. And that's good. Listen, the best discipleship is not when you get around and you talk about super deep, esoteric, double predestination, super lapsarianism, blah, 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 blah. (coughs) I'd much rather you go super deep in the basics. What are the implications the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has on your life today? What does it really mean practically to meditate on Scripture? I mean, Cam, when was the first time you heard me do that thing on Luke and talk about 30 minutes alone in prayer? Junior year at New Year's Conference. Junior year at New Year's Conference, right? 
So it was 11 years ago, something like that. And he and I just had a good little conversation over here about, you know, the ups and downs since then. And that's the normal, right? We're always up and down. Always going to be going deeper in the basics. So that's what we're trying to do with our discipleship. Take them deeper in the basics. Now, um, it can't just be come listen, but it's got to be learn and apply. So let's talk application for a second. Back to verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Okay, now, he basically says, Ma'am. The Amplified Version says, Dear woman. And what he's essentially saying is, Listen, you can't relate to me like I'm your little boy anymore. You can't tell me what to do. It's not, it's not disrespectful. It's very respectful. Okay. Um, this is kind of a side note, but it's funny. When one of my sons was really little, he kind of, he was like a kleptomaniac. I mean, he didn't steal from other people. He just stole from people in our house, right? He, just, he found something he liked and steal it and hide it under his bed. And at one point, my wife had lost something, like a button off of, and she's like, I know he's got it, you know, but he won't, he won't admit. And uh, she's like, well, you go talk to him. I said, okay, I'll go talk to him. He was pretty young, and I went in and I said, uh, hey, buddy, uh, mom really thinks that you have her button or whatever. Do you have a button? And he says, no, Dad. I said, okay, but, but are you sure? I, he said, Dad, if you don't believe me, you can wait until you die and go to heaven and ask God, and he'll tell you. And I kind of said, okay. Uh, you know, and I, and I went back to my wife, and I said what he said, and I said, I don't think he's being disrespectful. I think in just his little mind, he's trying to think of the best way to convince me that he really doesn't have your button, and I don't think he's got it, you know. In the same sense, I think this is Jesus. Maybe it's bad to use my son as an example of Jesus, okay? But I think this is Jesus being straightforward with his mom, but he's not being disrespectful. You, you don't primarily relate to me as my authority anymore. You're not, you're not mom that I have to submit to. I'm a grown man now. I'm the Messiah. And let's just say, based off of verse 4, does it sound like he's about to help, yes or no? Doesn't sound like he's going to help, right? Like, leave me alone. And listen, why? My hour has not come. That always refers to the hour of his death. And he's smart enough to know. Remember early in the Gospels, he's always telling people, don't tell people who I am. Don't tell people what I did for you. He didn't even want demons testifying to him. Keep quiet. Why? Because he knew if the word got out too soon, too fast, too hard, that he's the Messiah, it would speed up the clock of when he was going to die. And it wasn't time for that yet. But Mary seems to go away hopeful. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now Matthew Henry has a great little, kind of a devotional comment on this, but it's really good. Listen to this. When we come to God in Christ for any mercy, basically any prayer request, two things discourage us. A sense of our follies and infirmities and the fear of our Lord's frowns and rebukes. You understand what he's saying? We come we ask God, please do this for me. But we say, I'm so sinful and God's probably so mad at me, he's probably not going to do it. You ever felt that way? Afflictions are continued, deliverance is delayed, and God seems angry at our prayers. This was the case of the mother of our Lord here, and yet she encourages herself with hope that He will at length give an answer of peace to teach us to wrestle with God, even when He seems in His providence to walk contrary to us. Christ did at length miraculously supply them, and He is often better than His Word, but never worse. I mean, do you ever have times in your life where it seems like God is walking contrary to you and in His providence He's saying to you, no. Matthew Henry says, sometimes God's going to prove to be better than it even seemed like He said He was going to be. But it'll never be worse than that. 
So, Matthew Henry also says Jesus decides to do this. Why? For the faith of his infant disciples. He's trying to strengthen their faith. So verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water parts with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Okay. Now, one commentator said this would probably provide it up to like 2,400 more servings of wine. Skip down to verse 10. And he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. It's the best wine. Now, Kostenberger said, There is no rejoicing without wine in Jewish thought. To drink wine basically means to rejoice. That's what this is about. You ever thought about this as a weird story? Why your first miracle? Okay. Part of this is trying to say is, if you try to do life, and even if you try to do campus outreach ministry life without Jesus, there will be no joy. It will be drudgery. It will be discipline. Okay? It'll be good works, but it'll be boring. It'll be hard. Listen, uh, William Hendrickson said, if Jesus provides so lavishly physically, Certainly, he is able and willing and ready to provide so lavishly spiritually. And then, what you really want? I want lavish spiritual joy. I want lavish spiritual fruitfulness in my life. I know some of y'all may be listening, okay? We're, we're early on, but even just to the first little talk we did, saying, man, I'm, uh, it's exciting and it's motivated, and I, I want to be intensive and I want to do the life on life. And I remember somebody did that for me, and I, but I need my personal health. And I sign on for 40 hours a week. And my work day ends at 5. And you better not cut into my lunch break. And I need a nap. And I need eight and a half hours of sleep a night. Just a few months ago, one of the guys that I discipled, the country guy I was talking about, I discipled, he was on the New Zealand trip with me. He was coming through town. He's actually come back on staff with Camp Sutter's He was on staff. He left staff. He's come back on staff. Okay? And uh, so he's coming through town uh, for something. And he called me. He said, hey, can I spend the night at your house? And it was a, an incredibly busy week. And this guy, he's an expert. He likes to talk. So I know. I hadn't seen him in a while. He's like, he's going to come back through town. He's going to stay at my house. He's going to stay up late and talk. I'm going to want to stay up late and talk. And then the next morning I had to leave and go somewhere. And the only time I could work out was to get up in the morning early and go to the gym. But if I got, you know, another man staying at my house, I can't exactly get up early in the morning and leave my wife and kids there. with, You know, so I was like, it's going to mess up my routine for the next day. It's like my first kind of gut reaction is, this is my time. Right? When the staff training is over, I want to go home and I want to be in bed knocked out within 30 minutes. And if he's staying in my house, that ain't going to happen. And then I want to be able to wake up early and get to the gym. And that ain't gonna... But I'm like, I love this guy. This guy loves me. i got to prioritize this guy over my schedule. So I said, of course you stay at my house. And I did stay up late. And I didn't get as much sleep as I would like. We had a great conversation. It was encouraging for me. And I hope it was encouraging for him. Okay? And here's part of what I'm saying to you guys. Nothing in life that's worth anything comes easy. And the older generation of campus outreach people, so we're going to talk about Olin and Joe and Carly and back. There was a generation before us. (laughs) 
probably way overemphasize sacrificial ministry at the expense of personal health, be that mental, emotional, spiritual, psychological, all the above. Not all of them, but in general, that was the culture. It's my perception. I don't know most of you, so don't take this personal, okay? But I know a lot of staff around where I live that this current young generation in their 20s out of college, they're not in this ditch. They have steered far from that ditch. And you know what they've done? They have wrecked in the other ditch of personal health. Tell me my exact hours. I'll get two days off a week. All day Saturday, all day Sunday. One's not enough. Don't you dare call me on my off time. Now listen, I hope you hear my heart. I am all for personal health. I mean, that's why I started with the devotion I did this morning. You going deep with Jesus in an intimate way is more important than anything else we're going to talk about this whole time. But worshiping and exalting and idolizing personal health can be just as sinful as worshiping and idolizing ministry fruitfulness. And guys, just read the Bible. I mean, again, I'll say this again. Don't try to be more spiritual than Jesus. And listen, I'm into like trying to read how much sleep do I need and do that and be serious about it and all that, right? But it's like, we know Jesus had at least one night where he stayed up all night and prayed. So don't exalt, I got to get my seven hours every night because Jesus didn't get his seven hours every night. Jesus was so exhausted sometimes from ministry that he fell asleep in the boat during a storm. You imagine that? He was just worn slap out. There were other times where Jesus said, come with me. We need to get away, right? We got to get away, guys. You guys have been out there working. It's hard. You got to get away. You remember what happened? All the crowds followed him. And you remember what Jesus did? He said, no, we're not doing this. No, he said, I, I guess we'll minister to him. He loved people. And guys, I typically like to have Sunday be my Sabbath. That's the way I typically like to do it. You know, that I, I try not to do campus outreach work at all on Sundays, all day. Day rest. Go to church, spend time with my family, take a nap, watch TV, walk, rest. When I'm planning this staff training with David, you know, it's like for this to work, I got to Take a flight, you know? That doesn't feel like rest to me. So I was like, but, but it's okay. I was like, okay. Now listen, so I'm just trying to give you, this may be more than you want, but it may be helpful. I said, so for this week, my Sabbath will be Saturday. It's written in my iPhone. It's been written in my iPhone for weeks. No work on Saturday. I typically work on Saturdays. I'm not going to work on this Saturday because that's going to be my Sabbath for this week because it couldn't be on Sunday. But here's the thing. I got a couple that I'm working with and are, you know, and this, they're not campus outreach related. They're just meeting in the community type stuff. Just trying to be a good citizen. And some really horrific stuff came out last night. So in between flights, walking through the airport, I'm having to call counselors and police and all kind of stuff like that. I ain't got nothing to do with campus outreach. That's just trying to be a faithful Christian and love people that you run into. 
Here's my point. This idolization of my time and my way and my personal health, it's not just about campus outreach. It's about that doesn't work with Christianity if you really want to love others as you love yourself. I hope you hear my heart and example. I'm all about taking naps and having a Sabbath, okay? And I'm glad we got this two-hour break in the afternoon, you know, because I'm going to go get some time by myself and work out. And I'm all for that. Just don't idolize it, okay? I beat that drum enough. All right, listen. Eventually, the joy is going to run out of everyone's life if it's not really based in, rooted in, and centered in Christ. For most of the college students that you and I are ministering to, right, they're trying to find all their joy through sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? And we know, for most of them, the end of the party's coming. Maybe about junior year, it starts to crash and burn. They're like, this ain't as fun as it used to be. But here's one of the things I'm learning in this season of my life. And maybe this older table over here can attest as well. I'm, I wrestle with it in my own life, but see it in friends and family. That you kind of grow up, you become a mature Christian, you get married, you start to have kids, you have a respectable job, you're making some money, you get a house, da 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 And at some point, just the normal, good American dream life starts to get boring. That's all there really is. One more vacation. People start getting bored with their spouse. I'm out of here. This job is boring. Whatever you're doing, I don't like it. It's not fulfilling. If you're not sapping your deepest sense of satisfaction and self-worth and significance from the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis, there is no life on planet Earth that the joy will not eventually run out. The wine will run out. The party will get over. Okay, So the best discipleship is going to keep reminding people of that in fresh ways and pointing them back towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, see, guys, why did Jesus seem maybe reluctant to do this miracle at first? Because he knew once the word gets out that I'm the Messiah, it's like the clock starts ticking that leads to, i got to drink the cup of wrath for these people. And I know that's why I'm here. But it's also terrifying. And the next time that you or I have a hard time making a sacrificial decision to stay up a little past our bedtime to serve somebody, just remember what he sacrificed for us. And the so-called sacrifices that we make they're not even worth talking about. Right? They pale in comparison. If Christ be God and died for us, what is there he can ask that we shouldn't joyously give? And guys, when on a regular daily basis you're really worshiping him as the risen lamb and you're seeing that glory, And you're tasting it. And then it's a really hard week or a hard month or even a hard semester, even a hard year on the campus. You can keep going. You can keep going with joy. Because it's not about me. It's about him. And he's worthy. Lord Jesus.
You are worthy. We know you're worthy. I pray for all of us, myself included. Help us taste and see experientially at a deeper level how worthy you are so that we would be happy to sacrifice our lives for the sake of the kingdom. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.